Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Wednesday morning, the 31st of August. It is indeed. And um, and, uh, we're just reflecting that uh, for long-term listeners, I noted as we listened to the car, the promotion thing, the the introduction to this show, that with Doug's voice on it, that today was Doug's birthday. Of course, he died a couple of years ago. But, uh, yeah, so there you are. So I was 31, I remember that. And... um, and on with the show. It's the fifth Wednesday of the month. So we've got nothing specific, but we are going to have Cam Walker coming into the studio. I think everyone knows Cam. He's from Friends of the Earth. And um, he's going to talk about the decision yesterday by the state government to ban fracking altogether. And it follows up... Um, uh, in fact, it, it was coincidental because I'd contacted him independently of that because the New South Wales, the um, Northern Territory new government is also putting a moratorium on fracking in the Northern Territory. And it elicited an incredible amount of opposition from the usual suspects, yes. including um, that great socialist Martin Ferguson, oh, who <laughs> yeah, Marty, Marty came out and said it's the end of the end of the world as we know it. I think. <laughs> yes, you lucky person, oh, you. <laughs> so uh, we'll be talking to Kim about heaps of those things and lots of things to do with the environment today. We'll, we'll also catch up with him on what he thinks about. Um, Paris some months later, whether it's going to be effective or not in the long term and all those sort of things. So that sort of discussion. He's coming in about 20 past or so. Um, anyone got anything? I've got a couple of things here, but as usual. But <laughs> I'm going to pour some tea. Hang on. We should, oh, we should announce we've now got, we've gone, from, we've gone from rags to riches here. We've now got three teapots, all sent by our one and only fan. No, not our one and only fan, but, um, but by one, one person who is a regular listener. And um, including this giant teapot, I thought yeah. with possibly four or five people here today. It's so fantastic. isn't it one of this big I'm white... start selling them. This is yes. my superannuation scheme, these teapots. Yes. This teapot would almost empty Port Phillip. Bay. <laughs> anyway, we're going to uh, pour it. There we go. All right. It's good. It's pouring it's well. Yes, yes. That's, that's it's great. Fabulous right, yes. looking. Yes, yeah, it's, yes, it's yes. Very regal, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you. I did try it out at home just to make sure it worked okay, and it uh, it did. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now there we are. But we'll leave all these teapots here now, of course. And then, oh, that's my one, isn't it? And then there's um. Oh, we haven't got one for Emma yet. Oh, no, 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 no. I do. Oh, you got, I see. Oh, you're topping up. You've even got a cup here for Cam when he comes in. You're topping up. Terrific. Okay. Oh, there we are. That's it. Tea's poured. Um, There's an issue occurring, and I was going to get on to uh, Steve Jolly today, but I thought it might cramp the program a bit, because there's a lot to talk to him about. Steve, of course, socialist um, uh, councillor in uh, in Yarra. But they're under pressure, because the Vietnamese community wants them to fly the yellow flag on Vietnam Veterans Day. That's the flag of the South Vietnamese whom 
we supported quite wrongly. Uh, we've seen in recent weeks uh, historical revisionism implying that we really won the Vietnam War, let alone anything else. But um, these people, and they're screaming and yelling that, that the council should do it. Now, I notice the council has officially recognised the flag, which I think suspect anyway. But that great supporter of human rights... Um, Tim Wilson, who was the Human Rights Commissioner, is now, of course, just got elected to Parliament. Um, He's come out and attacked the council, saying it should not buckle under pressure from the Vietnamese government. The Socialist Republic of Vietnam um, shouldn't shouldn't, uh, control what we do here in Australia in the illegitimate interests of a Vienna group, etc., etc. It is grossly inappropriate that the Vietnamese embassy seeks to extend the reach of its socialist principles and request a council silence of community of Australians. Well, uh, come on. I mean... The Vietnamese have a flag now. They yeah. uh, they are a country that we they got yeah. united because they had that war. They yeah. they could have not had the war if uh, Eisenhower at the time originally had gone ahead with the original agreement to unite the country by a vote. But he realised the communists would win, so they put off the vote and had a war instead. Yeah. Um, and we supported the war, of course. Um, so uh, come on. Anyway, that's uh, I'm sure Steve would have some thoughts on that. We might try and get him in next week to have a bit yeah. of a chat about it because. Yeah, but on, on such things as wars, incidentally, um, the, uh, the, the latest edition of uh, Arena magazine has an article by uh, Paul Barrett. Now, he, this is no raving radical, no, so no raving mad lefty. Paul Barrett was the former secretary of the Department of Defence. These days, he's an adjunct professor at the University of New, of, uh, New England, but... Um, and he's, and he's written an article arising out of the Chilcot report in Britain about the Iraq war, right. in which he really gets stuck into Howard. He makes a lot of points, but there's a couple I thought worth making. He says, a, th- a third lesson to take is that the Australian government would do well to pay more attention to its own intelligence agencies. Although Howard has defended his actions by resort to claiming claimed flaws in the intelligence available to him, neither of the inquiries established by his government to inquire into the performance of the Australian agencies support that defence. The December 03 report of the Australian Joint Parliamentary Committee on ASIO, ASIS and DSD, chaired by Government MP David Joel, found that the case made by the government about thingos, thingos, um, this is not that was you know about the dangers posed. This is not the picture that emerges from an examination of all the assessments provided to the committee by Australia's two analytical agencies. The inquiry led by former DFAT Secretary Philip Blood found that the evidence for Iraqi WMD, that's weapons of mass destruction, of course, was thin, ambiguous and incomplete, hardly a sound basis on which to commit the nation to, to armed conflict. And he said he was involved in meetings with Howard where Howard only gave the information he wanted to and not and all the information. Yeah. Yeah. But one, one thing, I mean, we knew all that, but one thing I wasn't aware of, a year before, in '02, March '02. Australia amended its declaration before the International Court of Justice to delete any nation that didn't exist 12 months before invasion or whatever, uh, wasn't a signatory to the, to the court, uh, it take a, that, that we would not recognise its right to sue us. Now, that included Iraq, and he makes the point, as Iraq was not at that time a party to the statute, this amounted to the Australian government protecting itself from the compulsory jurisdiction of the court in respect of any contemplated invasion of Iraq, an indication of how long the government had that invasion in mind. Yeah. Um, just some interesting stuff there, I thought. It is interesting. It we, is interesting. Yeah, we quoted a, a, you know, a, a, 
a non-socialist um, economist last week, and now we're quoting a non-socialist yeah, uh, common commentary. That's why we're going mad. <laughs> but of course, they're making points that are that are quite important. No, they are important points, and you know, there's obviously been in in the UK, there's been a lot of reflection on the Iraq War recently, and and the decision to do it um, with that inquiry. And it's good to see that Howard is people are starting to sort of question Howard as well, in the same way that people have been questioning Tony Blair, because Howard mm -hmm. is complicit in this as well. Well, I think... And he shouldn't be allowed to get away with they it. They should be dragged before the court. Yeah. Smack, that's right, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Now, this is a story, I think, you know, these, sometimes we find a really beautiful story in the Herald Sun you don't expect to find. Sometimes. Mostly they're found on the uh, celebrities' double-page spread they have, yeah. and this is quite a beautiful one with the appropriate picture of the two of them. For years, they were rival ambassadors for Meyer and David Jones, but Jennifer Hawkins and Megan Gale are friends. Thank God. Hawkins <laughs> said the two left, that's the photo, left, they were certainly not left, but anyway, got got along very well on the set of Australia's next top model where Gail is making her debut as a judge. It was really nice to be able to work with her, Hawkins said. It was a nice thing to happen after all those years when we weren't allowed to talk to each other. The series of Australia's Next Top Model is already in the can, with Hawkins just recently seeing the show's promos on Foxtel. I think the can's a good place for it. <laughs> can you believe it? It's finally here, she said. It gives me butterflies when I see the promo. I was visiting my mum and dad in Newcastle the first time I saw it, and my whole face went red. Must have been drinking a bit. It was really intense. I think the girls are beautiful, and I'm really excited for people to get to know them. Well, we're certainly going to get to know them. I'm looking forward to it, aren't you? And, oh, right yeah. Yet. Hawkins will be in Melbourne next week for the Maya Spring Racing Fashion Lunch at Flemington and will again be in the Maya Marquee in the Birdcage during Melbourne Cup Week. That's a beautiful story, isn't well, it? Well, thank God all is well Yes, that's right, that's right. That's how yeah. I thought. When I read that, I thought, why go on? Why read anything else today? Mm. That's... Yeah. Rivalries are becoming friends. Yeah. It's just wonderful. No, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful, isn't it? Worry about mm. Yes, it's lovely. It's big lovely. I'm looking forward to, of course, well, the Fashion Week is in every day, of course. There seems to be a Fashion Week every week, the Herald Sun. In every week? Well, yes. We, yes, yes. yes. Every week's a Fashion Week. Yeah, um, well, obviously, right? <laughs> yeah, we, well, this studio, <laughs> this studio shows how much time we spend there. <laughs> 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 anyway, <laughs> I don't think we said it. We were, don't think we said it. We were at the start. We won't bother because we people would if they looked at us, they wouldn't want to know us anyway. Um, okay, a story this week also um, that the U.S. government paid a bounty of nearly five million dollars to a former employee of Australian mining giant BHP Billiton in a case that exposes the weakness of Australia's whistleblower regime. And over there, if you blow, if, if you if you whistleblow on a company and they make lots of money by suing them, which they did in this case, they sued our BHP. I mean, it's amazing. American courts seem to sue anyone around the world who they, they want to. Yeah. Uh, and they sued them for $25 million and paid this bloke $4 million for uh, for whistleblowing. Now, good, good luck to him. But it shows, you know, they say how this shows how America respects whistleblowers. Well, I thought, well, that means obviously they'll be giving lots and lots of money very shortly to Edward Snowden to... Uh, to WikiLeaks, uh, etc. Oh, well, millions, millions, and uh, and of course um, the WikiLeaks uh, Julian Assange. Yes. He'll get, he'll get, he'll get plenty. He'll get oh, yeah, that's he'll right. Get, so, so it's obvious, and they actually um, some other bloke got charged this week with whistleblowing about something to do with the government. So apparently it's okay with a private company, but it was the government. <laughs> it's not quite so good. Not quite so good, no.
But there is a bit of a, I think there's a little bit of hypocrisy there somewhere. Yeah, you know, not that I'm suggesting. Oh, just, a tad, just oh, well, not a, not a lot. <laughs> no, no, but a little bit. Um, the, now there was a um, there's a story come out also. There's going to be this big new development on the north bank of the Yarra. They've been talking for years about this. It's the intersection of Flinders Street and Wurundjeri Way, um, and the good shed, the old historical working good shed, etc., will be will be transformed. Um, in fact, the good shed um, will be will include the hotel lobby, have shops and restaurants and be used for events that Riverley, that Riverley's the company developing it, envisages will enliven the waterfront by day and night. It sounds like great fun, doesn't it? So here's this bit of working class history. Well, that's the old shed there, a bit of working class history down there. It's near the, um, near the uh, Mission to Seafarers building, if people know that. And... Um, and I thought, well, that's lovely to see this building because there won't be too many working people going there at this stage to enjoy the um, waterfront day and night, the enlivened waterfront. Uh, but it's going to it's going to have the usual. It's a multi-storey, 180-room hotel and 250-unit complex with a striking glass facade accentuated by gold class fins. And the architect <laughs> said the new building will float above the heritage shed in a series of curvaceous, light and airy layers in a way that's inspired by the curves of the river and its tidal flows. Isn't that beautiful? And Robert Doyle, the Lord Mayor, was saying, well, wonderful this is going to be. Uh, just what strikes me as interesting was, because we talk about this a lot and we mentioned it with Howard last week talking about housing, uh, this in fact is on public land uh, that yeah. was sold to this developer. Yeah. So this was land that could have, could have in fact had public housing yeah. on it and uh, affordable housing. And, it would have uh, been nice had there been you know, some uh, public housing incorporated into the development and uh, some space for artists, emerging artists, and, and yeah, to make it more socially equitable. Right. You know, and people just... lecturing in music. Yeah, and that sort of thing, that's right. Which yeah, Emma's now doing. Yeah, yeah. Emma's now. Yeah. You've yes. got. What are you doing now, Emma? Tell tell everyone what, what your latest I'm job is. Tutoring half of Melbourne Polytechnic in music theory. Yeah. It, it's just happened as of last week. And I didn't know until today that Emma does music theory. I mean, you do yeah. so much. You're uh, a planner. You're. I mean, your list is endless. It's a, yeah, it's a little bit crazy. Yeah, it's good though. It keeps you yeah. out of mischief. Yeah, it does. Yes. Mm, not That's necessarily. <laughs> 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 Hang on, don't go that far. <laughs> Stop being too nice. <laughs> the, the, okay, now uh, allied to that with uh, our good friend. Um, our good friend Robert Doyle, the mm. mayor who wants to run again for another term, he's a great believer in political rotation. The old Robert, um, he um, he now wants Melbourne to to apply for the twenty twenty eight or twenty thirty two Olympic Games. Right, he's, that should be great fun for us. And, um, yes, he want he says it'd be wonderful for Melbourne, etc. And uh, the committee for Melbourne said the city would be a competitive thing. And Ron Walker's in behind it. And there's a number of other people who um, have now come out. Uh, important people who say this is wonderful. Now we stopped the last one, thank goodness. Uh, we we had a there was a group called uh, group called what was it called? I can't remember now. It was uh, whatever. It'll come to me shortly. Uh, that uh, fought the last campaign. Mm. They came when they campaigned for the nineteen ninety six games, and we knocked them off, which was wonderful. The night that they knocked them off, there was mourning in the place where all the bureaucrats and the 
everyone was wanting it to happen, and we had this wonderful celebratory party. Well, there we uh, go. <laughs> uh, to celebrate the fact that we didn't get the bloody thing. Yeah, but yeah. Now, we're, now they're talking about um, the Mirabinong Defence Facility. Now, this is going to take a fair while to clean up, and who's paying for that? Well, who knows? And, uh, and uh, presumably it's going to end up being a housing estate owned by the private sector again. This is another area that could have, if you clean it up properly, it yeah. could be used again. Yeah. Uh, but now... Um, Doyle and Company are saying this would be an ideal site for the Olympic Games Village. Right. So they could put all the athletes right. there. Isn't that wonderful? So yeah. I, another campaign we might have another, to go to. Another yeah. gentrification. Oh, that group yes. was, I just remembered its name. It was called Bread Not Circuses. That was the group. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, that was the group oh, that fought, the, uh, fought nice. the Olympic Games. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and on, on, a, on a more positive note, the, the, the squatters down at Bendigo Street. Uh, have at least been given another um, three-week reprieve by the court to uh, They have. To sort I was out. there on Sunday. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was the How... Bendigo Street Festival. How was it? It was great. Mm. There was speeches and music, and I was helping to run the Doing It Ourselves zine store. Mm. And, um, yeah, there were workshops, and uh, Food Not Bombs were there. And I, I got to look at some of the houses that are being mm. squatted in. It's fantastic. It yeah. would have been such a waste to have demolished those. I mean... Just it's just ridiculous that they were planning on putting a road through there. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently, apparently, uh, some of the people down there have now actually they've actually found housing for them, which is good. So it's having an effect. It's, well, it's had yeah. a huge impact. Yeah, it's 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 actually got the topic of public housing into the into the media, and it's got the topic of homelessness mm. into the media, and um, and it's and it's forced the state government to to look at the issue. So I think mm. it's yeah. it's been great. It's been yeah, It's been really good. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And there was a. Um, You'll be pleased to know also, and another another CFMEU official got fined last Friday in the um, in the court of magistrate on Friday in uh, I think it might have been in Canberra. I'm not sure exactly where it was. Uh, no, probably in Sydney because it was the Barangaroo development, that big development in Sydney on the harbour there. And yes. they were having a blockade over some issue, presumably safety or something. And the usual suspects, the Fair Work Building and Construction Inspector, turned up, and. Um, the um, the union official grabbed a megaphone and this is the most awful thing he 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 played who let the dogs out right yeah now that was deemed by the court to be intimidatory <laughs> and he got fined a thousand dollars and put on a two year good behaviour bond for that jeez yeah yeah that's how that's how good the law is this is this this is the construction authority the ALP in 07 said it was going to tear up work choices now it tore up about two pages out of about every ten pages yeah. And it just re, re, virtually renamed the thing, and it still has these dreadful, um, these dreadful powers to stop unions doing what unions do, which is defend their workers. That's 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 terrible. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Jeez. Yeah. Just so for playing are. a song, crikey. Yep, yep. I did say a few nasty things to him, but it wasn't, you know, you, ah, the sort of thing you get a thousand dollars. Sort of thing, sort of thing a, 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 a union official would say to a, a boss or someone on a, on a site. That's, yeah, that's exactly. exactly. I think the the song was um, clearly intimidating. If someone sang that to you, you'd feel intimidated. I'd be you? devastated. Yeah, and oh. Emma, Emma wouldn't, because she'd go into the music theory of it. Well, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is this is right. <laughs> see, I, I don't have that. You the, see. Co the quality of performance. <laughs> <laughs> She might find him for having a bad voice, <laughs> being off key. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's the trouble there. Um, but anyway, um, now another one in industrial relations stuff. Um, tugboat workers at um, 
at Port Hedland, um, now their their unions are the Marine Power Engineers and the Australian Maritime Officers Union. But because the company said if it didn't um, save money, it wouldn't get the contract again, and I think this is pretty awful, the unions have agreed to actually take a cut in pay and conditions in order to help the company get the contract, which I find pretty ordinary. That's very ordinary. Very ordinary indeed. So, yeah, um, very ordinary. Yeah. Look, Cam Walker's lobbed into the building. Why don't we take a break? You're going to play a song, aren't we? Yeah. We are, yes. So Do we're you going want to introduce it? Yeah, this is a song called Country Love. It's by a band called Shock Octopus, and they will be performing live on Burning Vinyl this Friday. So tune in and listen to them in the studio. That's in 3CR at... Uh, is it two o'clock? It's Friday afternoon, burning yeah, vinyl. Yeah, the burning vinyl. It's around show. lunchtime. Sometime, uh, yeah, right? around yeah, the lunchtime. Yeah. yeah. Check, Check on the out. website. Check it out. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Right. Take a break and then we'll get Cam in and have a yarn about all sorts of things. And this is uh, Country Love. Country Love. Burn your name, now country love You won't need it here And anyway, it's all we've got Leave your shoes off at the door They walk much too far To give you more or want to at all Every night And let your thoughts slow down And reach the point of snap and flame right out If I meet you at the table Just disregard the fact Advising me to be well upon my way I should
Okay, we're back, and that was all you can back in there. Uh, that was Shock Octopus with Country Love. Rightio, and they're going to be on um, on Burning Vinyl on Friday on 3CR. They so are indeed. There we are. Um, Cam Walker's in the studio. Hi, Cam. Hello. And uh, Cam, of course, is from Friends of the Earth. Perhaps I should say that in case someone's just landed from Mars or somewhere. Um, and response to yesterday's banning of fracking in, in Victoria, Cam, um, Malcolm Roberts, um, the association chief executive of the product these, of the petroleum mob, he says activist fear campaigns can create confusion and uncertainty in the community, but our political leaders have a responsibility to rise above such campaigns and support an honest, factual debate. And he says that um, all scientific evidence is that fracking is not dangerous. You have to wonder what planet he lives on, don't you? Mars, um, we just mentioned it. Yes. <laughs> um, what he's saying there is farmers and rural communities, who are the people that have driven this campaign and got this outcome, are basically stupid, that they're being hoodwinked by environmental troublemaking, you know, scary activists. And uh, I th- suggest you probably go to Sea Spray and Gippsland or, you know, Western Victoria... And try and tell farming people that they've been hoodwinked. You know, people have very deep-seated concerns about this industry. In Sea Spray, they lived with fracking for several years. They know what it looks like. They know how it impacts on them, their lives, their communities, their groundwater, and they don't want it. Mm. So, of course, Appia is going to say that. You know, they're paid very good money to basically dismiss people like us. But uh, the fact of the matter is this is wildly supported in the community. We released some polling, some rich tell polling just recently that showed 68% of Victorians across the state are concerned concerned about this issue, uh, and the majority of people would support a ban. So, yes, his his is a paid mouthpiece for a, for a, a gas industry, so, of course, he has to mm. say something like that. The last, um, one of the last rallies we had here, one of the really big environment rallies, there were groups from all over Victoria with the little green signs where they were from, and there were, there were country towns all over, and cities all over Victoria that were opposing this sort of development. Yeah, there were 75 communities declared themselves either coal or gas field free, and in order to do that, they had to door knock every household in their community. So we're talking, I, I think last count was about 18,000 doors. Now, anyone that's door knock knows, you know, you can't just do it in one hit. You know, mm. often people are out and you've got to keep going back. It was remarkable determination. Mm. A lot of those declarations took 18 months to complete, you know, so local communities, all volunteers, that's how dedicated they were. The 75 uh, declarations were all beautiful community events, you know, a music festival, you know, a sign on a beach with people, that type of thing. And that gave us the power and that forced the coalition's hand when they were in power. And then subsequently we got the moratorium back in 2012. So I think what that did was demonstrate really fantastic grassroots democracy. And the other thing that I, you know, as a long-term lefty environmental activist, working with conservative voters and working with a really, you know, a, a broad range of people in the community was ultimately incredibly exciting because you realise the minute you drill into it, you've got a lot more in common than you've got indifference. And and this mm. was a campaign that was built on building a sense of community power. Yeah. Can you develop that a bit? Because, I mean, that's been one of the things we've talked about over the years now, but the fact that there is this conservative element of, you know, farmers are generally seen as conservative politically and the environment movement all got together. It's been a long-term one. Can you go through that a bit about that long-term development? For us, uh, it actually started in 2009 when we uh, got in touch with farming communities that were opposed to the North-South Pipeline, which was a a project under the previous ALP government. And we didn't think it made sense environmentally, but we realised that farmers were actually being arrested on their land in order to try and 
stop that pipe from being built. And we worked with some groups up there, uh, particularly one called Plug the Pipe, which was quite aligned at that point with the coalition. And it was quite unusual for us, but we found some common cause and we kind of built from there. And then in 2010-11, we realised that a very large percentage of southern Victoria, that is south of the divide and that is our best best watered, best farming country, was under risk from new coal and coal seam gas and other forms of uh, unconventional gas. And we just basically started to ring people up. We'd look them up online and see who in an area, uh, you know, might have a concern about this. We'd look in the Weekly Times or the Herald Sun on a Wednesday under public notices and see if there was a licence being put forward. And that was the notification process. It was ridiculous. You know, they didn't have to tell anyone that their land was, you know, you know under prospect for coal or gas. <coughs> We'd ring people up, we'd encourage them to have a meeting and, you know, sometimes within a few days you'd have 50 or 60 people in a town hall in Gabby or, you know, wherever it might be and that just kind of turned into a snowball effect and it led mm. ultimately to this remarkable alliance and, you know, in those regional towns often the core group would be some, you know, national voting farmers, maybe a, a retired union organiser or, you know, someone that was a teacher or, you know, a re- couple of retired people. It was a beautiful microcosm of local society society Mm. Uh, and they just put their differences aside and agreed to work together and it kind of all went from there so you know people would leave their baggage at the door and I was endlessly impressed by the ability of people to be very pragmatic and reach Mm. across political boundaries and and just basically to find common cause and ultimately we won and I think the proof of the pudding there is the permanent ban first one in Australia uh, that's permanent which Mm. is pretty amazing by yesterday mid-morning we were getting calls from around the country from people in WA and mm. the top end saying we're fighting you know this industry and this mm. gives us hope so yeah. you know great for Victoria but great for Australia. Mm-hmm. This is great do you think I mean obviously this is a great case study and a great example of how people from different political backgrounds have been managed to, to connect together um, do you think that you know we've obviously got the big issue of climate change and these huge issues that we're facing now. Do you think we can learn from this about how we can connect people from different backgrounds and groups so that we can apply this in these larger, um, more sort of national, international campaigns? I think we do. And our approach was always ideology light. So we would go, you know, to the Otways or we'd go to Western Victoria and we'd say, we're concerned about this coal or this gas are you concerned? If so, let's work together. And we consciously parked, you know, climate change and renewables as conversations. We said, of course, we want to go to 100% renewables. And of course, we're concerned about fossil fuels and climate change, but we're not here to, you know, proselytise to you about those issues. We're here to work where, you know, meet you where you are. And people basically respected that, I think. But what happened was, we all know, if you have a relate, it's easy to diss someone if you read them in the newspaper. But once you know people, it's very hard you know, to just kind of disagree and be rude. And over time, people would start to raise issues. And the story I keep telling that I absolutely love was sea spray in Gippsland on the 90-mile beach. Uh, a lot of ex-coal miners go there to retire. It's got one of the highest uh, returns at the local uh, voting booth for the coalition in the entire state. It's hardcore multi-generational coalition voters. They now have had conversations about starting a community-owned wind farm, you know, and, like, it doesn't get better than that from a community 
community mm. where, you know, if you just wanted to look from the outside, mm. you'd say they're not going to be interested mm. in this. And yet the opposite mm. was actually true. And mm. they were the cornerstone of this campaign. And I think it just highlights how if people can treat people as human beings and find common cause and work from there, you can achieve pretty amazing things. Yeah. So it's, it's really about trying to find the areas where we can connect and, yep. and, and not emphasising ideology so yep. much and just seeing it as an ongoing conversation yep. and, and moving forward like, like that. Indeed. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that's, you know, emerging forms of activism. You know, yep. it doesn't mean we don't hold our political analysis or our views or, our you know, our political position. Of course, we are a progressive organisation sure. and you just have to look on our website to realise that. Uh, so we would always have truth in advertising about who of we course. were. But it meant that when coalition MPs or conservative commentators tried to tell farmers they were being, you know, quote, led up the, the, mm. the path with the, the mad greenies, you know, 10 or 15 farmers would stand in the way and say, well, are you calling me stupid? So I think by being honest, yes. um, you know, they, they would just realise, well, who's, yeah. you know, who, who, who is right here and who's got a vested interest, which brings us back to the, the conversation that started that with the yeah. gas uh, rep uh, saying it's mm. been a, a poor policy decision. And, and of sure. course, um, they get to see that the Greenies mightn't be quite as mad as they thought they were. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> and I remember many long conversations with people disagreeing me uh, with me about mountain cattle grazing, you know, because some families we worked with there, you know, were connected with grazing. Mm. I had people tell me climate change, you know, was, you know, a bunch of rubbish and all the rest of it. But over time, people would... I I was often staggered by at the end of a public forum, you know, and you'd have a cup of tea and that's a beautiful thing about regional me- meetings is it's always a community event and there's always lots like of... Like city limits, right? A cup yeah, of exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very civilised <laughs> events. And people would just come and say, well, you know, I'm not sure about this climate change, but my mm. farm is different, you know, mm. the groundwater is dropping and the rains yeah. come at the wrong time and people get it. Yeah. If, you, if you take away the ideology and it becomes a culture war when you start talking about climate change, but if you just say, well, is life and land changing... Of course it is. Uh, so I think we have remarkable allies there. We just have to figure out ways to kind of you know, mobilise them on mm. this issue. Mm. Sea spray is interesting because long before this campaign, we camped there one night just you know, driving around and we just got dark and so we thought we'll camp here at Sea Spray. And it was coincidental to that degree. Um, but all over the town at that stage, there were signs everywhere campaigning against... Um, raw sewage being dumped in the ocean off sea space. Mm. So they've had long history of campaigning about something down there, so it's a good sign. Yes, mm. and, and they had a human sign there on the beach, and I think they had 450 people come along, and a local you know, pilot offered his mm. plane for free, and they took some amazing footage. Yeah, you know, It's such an iconic sign, the 90-mile mm. beach. Um, you know, there have been a lot of communities, you know, mm. just so many communities. It was initially Gippsland, and then it went to the Otways region, and we actually won there with a couple of coal proposals. Mm. And then it went into into Western Victoria, very different country because, you know, of course you've got the large, you know, very kind of mainstream sheep grazing properties, mm. a little bit more <laughs> liberal country than national country. Mm. Uh, but again, you know, the same kind of response and the, the same kind of really smart, determined grassroots organising from the, from the people on the ground there. Yeah, that was one of the things I noticed at that rally. There were, you, know, you see Gippsland a lot because that's where you're sitting. But there are a lot of places from quite conservative towns in the Western District that yep. are very much liberal strongholds. Yeah. And it's fascinating to look at um, the t- 2014 state election. If you look for the first time ever, there was actually a shift in voting intentions there where there were, in some cases, I remember seeing 100 to 300% swings to the Greens in absolutely, you know, blue ribbon liberal voting booths. Mm-hmm. And that was just a sense that people felt that they had been abandoned by the parties and the institutions that were meant to look after them. And when that starts to happen, as we know as political activists, 
when faith in existing institutions starts to crumble, uh, you know, history favours those who come forward with new ideas. Mm. And I think, you know, this was a new model that that worked for people. Um, And I think as the left and as progressive people, we as yet haven't gone to the next stage. And it will be interesting to see once the ban happens and this campaign is over, what's next. But I think there is a real job to to say, well, we, you know, we have worked with you. It has been fantastic. Mm. We have won. We haven't, you know, had the rough edges kind of rub up against each other too much. What's mm. next? Yeah. Uh, so I feel quite inspired about the next it's very couple inspiring. of years. Very inspiring. Well, have you got any idea what's next? Uh, well, we've got to knock off some coal licences in Gippsland in particular and, you know, a number of communities such as Merbu North are coal and gas field free. So, you know, that's the ne- next obvious one. There's already lots of conversations. Um, I think the next stage is the party. Um, so there'll be lots of parties in mm. regional Vic. And then I think people will need to just, you know, run away for a couple of months because for some of these people it's been five years of stress. Yeah. Um, and suddenly, you know, like people last summer were saying, I can't have a holiday because I'm scared that the drill rigs, you know, that the moratorium might be overturned. So I think there'll be a lot of running away yeah. and then there'll be some serious regrouping. What about Fantastic. conventional onshore gas? Is that still a possibility? Not for four years. So um, I, of course, we would have loved a, a permanent ban on all gas drilling onshore in Victoria, yeah. uh, but they've extended the moratorium for four years. The cynics would say, oh, well, that pushes it conveniently out past the next uh, election cycle. But, you know, that's been the whole story of this campaign. The, the coalition with their original moratorium pushed it safely beyond the election cycle. So, you know, the current government has just done the same thing. Mm. I honestly don't think that the gas companies are going to sit around with their money for four years in the hope that the ban is overturned. I think this is the end yeah. of onshore conventional gas in Victoria. In fact, people who come out of the old gas and fuel area, old, you know, old unionists around the place now, they claim there are there are hundreds, up to hundreds of, of exploration sites offshore they could use anyway, and that they just uh, they just want to get a hold of the gas onshore. It's just greed really directing it. There's a lot of speculative kind of greed going on in this sector where people are truthing up resources in the hope of on-selling, you know, and that's been a real problem here. And sometimes you don't know who they are. They might be good companies, they might be cowboys, but more importantly, who are they going to sell to? And, you know, there are some really disreputable players in the gas sector. So I think at this point with, uh, you know, that what is it, I think 190,000 Victorians are employed in agriculture and it's worth about $11 billion a year to our economy. Why would you put that at risk? And more and more we rely on our quote clean and green image so why Mm. would you put that reputation at risk for the possibility of some short-term money and some long-term contamination definitely the uh, the the union the aw the awu now <laughs> you call them a union i suppose you can awu they've come out and um, and attacked in fact any any ban on um onshore um conventional gas and they say if you're serious about manufacturing etc and about jobs the usual argument how do you respond to that they're saying that jobs could go aren't being created because we're, we're banning it I think they actually became a little bit more nuanced in their approach where they came out and said, we understand the ban on unconventional, but we're uncertain about the ban. That's what they say, yeah. They said it's a bridge too far to go to conventional gas. So good that they've stepped a little way. I think it's tough for that union because they actually have members in the agricultural sector. So, you know, they can't upset them because most agricultural Mm. workers don't want the the gas fields. Um, Obviously, the big problem is Australian paper. Uh, It's the largest individual gas user uh, in the state, and it's 
that's struggling with really high gas energy prices. Our approach is we would refer people to the Melbourne Energy Institute out at Melbourne Uni that did a really good report on getting off the gas. So how do we do what's called energy shifting? So in your home, don't use the gas heater, use your electricity, uh, your, your, your split system to cool and heat. It's actually cheaper. And I think their average was $1 to $200 a year off your bill if you actually shifted from gas because gas mm. prices are going up. So what we need to do is cut our use of gas in the domestic and commercial sector and accept that in the short term, particularly in chemical feedstock, there are no alternatives that are viable uh, to gas at present. So it just makes sense. And the AWU have talked about the notion of the gas reserve idea. We don't have a position on that, but that's one way you could approach it where you say, mm. you've got limited volumes of gas, let's reserve some of it to use at home for necessary industry. That might be a model. Let's reduce our use in the other sectors and favour the, the, the sectors where there are no alternatives. So we need a kind of sensible, you know, response to this, I think. We're, we're, yeah. we're not just saying that, you know, uh, everything will be fine if we have a bandwidth. There are implications for manufacturing sector. But also we need to understand that because our federal government is obsessed with selling gas overseas, mm. us as consumers here in Melbourne, we're increasingly paying an international yes. price. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not the fault of the moratorium. That's the fault yeah. of the federal government. Yeah. I was going to go to that. I mean, the reason is the reason the price is so high is that that they were yep. exporting it. But and some stage, WA has tried to push that reserve thing, just reserve it for domestic use locally and keep it cheap. But the industries oppose that totally, of course. And as the situation recently in South Australia with the massive increase mm. in energy prices shows, there's a, you know a lot of dodgy dealings in the supply and wholesale sectors in mm. terms of how they release energy into the market. So there's a whole bunch of reasons prices are going up. I noticed um, there's a business analyst in the Herald Sun today was saying that the Premier had, quote, declared war on the people of Victoria, you know, because suddenly gas prices will go up uh, as a result of this ban. And it's just silly to say that. You know, the Auditor General's report, the government's own report, which went into the inquiry process around the ban, said, well, you'd have to produce vast volumes of unconventional gas to have any impact, um, you know, on, on the price. And there mm. were never going to be vast volumes mm. coming onto the market quickly. No. So it's a false argument. Yeah. Uh, and the ACCC, in fact, on that point with South Australia, because when, when they needed to fall back on AGL's gas plant there, prices went immediately up to about 14000 which is the cap. $14,000 per kilowatt hour it is. Um, now, the ACCC looked at it and said, well, that was OK because that's market forces. Now, it seems to me a pretty extraordinary definition of market forces that because because they do rely on you, you can suddenly charge what you like up to $14,000 a kilowatt hour. And I think the solution, when, when regulation fails, activism becomes necessary. And I think, you know, if you look around, there's a growing number of community campaigns targeting the energy retailers, the people we as domestic consumers buy our energy off. And that's because there's been a failure of the system to put a, a, a sensible cap on energy prices and gaming of the system where people are producing energy at a time from the most expensive option in order to make the most mm. money. So, um, yeah, this is a time where, you know, when you get a failure in the system, the solution is always community activism that is hurting those retailers that are price gouging mm. by withdrawing our you know support mm. th from them poor dears yes this, we all feel sorry for them that's right heart starts to bleed but um all right anyone else got anything to carry well, on i'm um, looking at the, the, the broader issue i mean it's as far as i know there are no rules in place for new houses to have solar panels or solar hot water systems in place is there in victoria there's we, not compulsory yet is it I, I hate to admit that I've actually lost track of the, mm. the housing code business. Mm. We worked on this about five years ago and we've been very subsumed into renewables yeah. um, and the gas campaign. Sure. Last time I looked, you had to have 
either a solar uh, hot water system or a rainwater tank. Yeah. Uh, there's an ongoing problem where we need to, you know, I think the average energy rating of a Victorian house is around 2.5 stars. Yeah. I think the average energy rating in Western Europe is about 8 to 10 stars. Mm. We could be doing so much better, but whenever mm. government starts to talk about improving energy rating, the housing sector pushes back and yeah. says, and the Herald, you know, like the, the conservative press will always say, oh, it will put the Australian dream out of reach because it'll <laughs> add all this money to, yeah. to housing, which is so the Australian cheap, dream is, is already out of reach, by the way, for anyone who might be uh, confused on that issue, <laughs> yes. due, to, due to other elements of the capitalist system. Indeed. But, um, yeah, but um, I mean, that would save a lot if we take a more holistic approach. Mm. I mean, if, if, imagine if every new house had a solar, mm. solar hot water yep. system in place and or, and or a, um, a a heat pump you know yep. the amount of gas and, we can and a water send. tank and, and, and a, a water, water tank, tank not yeah. just one or the other but both you know and and this is this is the thing this is the problem unless we we look at it in the bigger picture mm. the, the holistic yep. Yep. approach looking at everything from domestic housing to to everything yep. you know we're, we're going to yep. miss miss the boat you know? yeah you're right and yeah. we tend to look sector by sector so housing or energy yeah. or you know agriculture but really unless we take a big picture which is really what governments are there for you know to a large degree is to think beyond sectoral interests well they're not doing uh, a very good job <laughs> yes uh, and i guess our job is to keep you know needling yeah. them and pushing them along and get Absolutely. them to do better which is why it's so important that you're doing what, what you're doing yeah. Which brings us, in fact, to an article in the latest edition of Arena magazine by Ted Trainer, whom you probably know, who's an retired academic, and he um, he's currently developing an alternate lifestyle thing near Sydney. But he he writes in this. He he argues that that we can't sustain the growth we've got because the world, the the planet, simply can't sustain it at the rate it's going to be needed. And he really he says the. The only way a high quality of life can be provided for all the world's people is by our mostly small-scale and highly self-sufficient communities drawing mostly on local resources. They would have to be basically cooperative and collectivist, involving committees, co-ops, working bees, commons, much public property, and thoroughly participatory town self-government. And it goes on about the fact that we really have to simplify huge reductions in international trade and travel, etc., etc. Comment on that? Well, we live in a celebrity-obsessed, reality TV-obsessed society, unfortunately, mm. and uh, most people, their heads aren't in the space of developing, you know, local cooperatives. Um, I think the reality we have is uh, we have a system that's profoundly uh, blind to the ecological collapse that's happening, mm. and uh, we need to keep talking it up so people like Ted are invaluable to talk up these mm. issues. Mm. There is no doubt that we're living uh, in ecological overshoot. We're over-consuming resources, so in a <laughs> effect as a species we're stealing from the planet and stealing from the generations that will come after us mm. that's clearly shown by climate change we're overusing the global commons of the atmosphere and the mm. oceans and the soil uh, so we're living very blindly and we need to change that and ultimately economic systems that are predicated on economic growth equals good uh, is is inherently wrong in the 21st mm. century and we, we need to move towards steady state economies and mm. that does need to require a lot less, for instance, air freight. You know, at present we're increasingly seeing ourselves as the food bowl for Asia, for the people in Asia mm. that can afford mm. it and you have to say, well, how long is that sustainable in a, in a carbon-constrained future? So there's a whole lot of elephant-in-the-room issues that Ted constantly raises yeah. and the, the mainstream, you know, analysis is mm. kind of to pretend it isn't happening and I don't know you know how you break that 
that well, problem. how you get it out into the into the public domain to discuss because you know multiple people don't read this sort of magazine yeah. and read these sort of articles. But yeah. how do you get that, that thought out there to even start thinking about it? Well, I guess we're doing it here in our humble yeah, way, right. um, <laughs> and, and that's all you can do is talk about it. And I think you know, getting back to the gas campaign, my experience has been the value of kitchen table conversations, mm. and mm. you know, more and more we we segment where we get our information from. We get a lot of our news off social media rather than watching the news on TV at night. You know, there's been a profound shift mm. in our society and I think social networks and the social media that we rely on is increasingly a way where we can have those conversations. Mm. Yes. The other side of that, getting back to our gas thing, is that the head of um, Santos says that you know, the usual argument that it's uh, the arguments against gas, etc., are, are wrong and all that. Mm. And he says it's the government's responsibility to help the industry develop gas. Now, is that, does that sound reasonable to you? Well, I know in the case Victorian of... Victorian governments let him down badly, obviously. They are. Um, they cut... Uh, the current Victorian government cut the uh, Energy to the Regions program, which is gas reticulation in regional Victoria, in the last state budget, and that was a fantastic move. We should not be extending the life of fossil fuels by increasing uh, investment in infrastructure and certainly not using public funds for that. Mm-hmm. We should be using public funds for research, development and rollout of known renewable technologies. So I think, again, he's clearly wrong. Um, of course, many in industry want taxpayers to f- stump up the money to you know, see investment uh, that industry will make money off, but I don't think that's the role of government in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and moving on to um, something else, because we all look forward to what would happen if Donald Trump won the election, for instance, don't we? Um, but, but a bloke writing in the, and this has been reprinted from the uh, Financial Times, uh, Edward Luce, he's written an article and he says, um, my home in Washington was hit by two nights of electricity outage. The power company's crew said they expected many more such cuts. Their underground cables were not designed to withstand so many days of daytime temperatures near 100 degrees Fahrenheit. People and he goes through. People in California suffered from a rise in the ferocity of wildfires. Louisiana uh, was flooded by once in a thousand year rainfall. Large tracts of Midwest America, where drought is no longer freakish, are feeling the anecdotal force of climate change. And he goes on about all those extremes we know about, but then makes the point, and he he bemoans it that in the US election, climate change isn't rating uh, as an issue, uh, according to him anyway. It's the same old dilemma, isn't it? Unless you get a policy race where both parties, main parties, are running on the same issue, it's very hard to get anywhere. Mm. So in the federal Mm. election here, to their credit, the ALP started to talk about climate change, so it became an issue. Um, But with Donald Trump basically being a sceptic and, you know, being very aligned with fossil fuel sector, of course Mm. it's not in his Mm. interest to talk about it. It was very interesting to see how the Bernie Sanders campaign, which was very strong on climate change in the deal that was done at the national conference was able to get out of the Clinton camp a commitment on climate change. Mm. So, you know, that was quite heartening. Um, Hillary has talked about this climate emergency summit that she'll convene within 100 days. You know, if she gets in, it'll be interesting to see if that's one of those non-core promises that she's made. But, mm. um, you know, I think that on the democratic um, agenda, climate is there, and I'm heartened that it was grassroots activism from progressive forces that, that put it on there, um, mm. you know, rather than the candidate mm. herself. And the odds are she'll win, I guess, but... 
you'd hope. <laughs> yeah, let's, not, let's hope anyway, but I think yeah. probably that's, that is the case. Just, be, just before we go, um, Paris, um, it's now, what, six or eight months or something, whatever we're into, the beginning of the eighth month, the ninth month almost, so we're up to nine months of, uh, since Paris. Um, is it going to have a long-term impact, do you think, or is it just, uh, again, another talk fest? I think it has to. Um, you know, the failure isn't a, a possibility when it comes to the global climate negotiations. I think... Already there's been some work that says if all the countries actually do the commitments they've committed to, it's not enough and we're into dangerous climate mm. sta- change no matter what. So the, the, you know, the cuts have to be deeper, but we actually have to do them and already we're seeing people kind of you know, drag their heels. I think in many ways, you know, climate change is a global issue, so it needs a global re- coordinated response. But the thing I take heart from with Paris is it's a different beast to what it used to be. That is the UN framework. Now all the voices from the fringes have stepped into the centre. You know, Kiribati and Tuvalu and the African nations and all the nations on the front line of climate change who were often at the periphery in the old Mm. days where it was, you know, the group of eight and the USA and, you know, a small number of people dominating the EU, dominating the debate. To a large degree, people have forced themselves into the room and are speaking about the urgent need for action on climate change. And I think that narrative can only get stronger as islands go under and as, you know, atolls become unviable, that imperative to act is going to, you know, force itself. We, you know, we're not waiting around for the nations of the world to get themselves organised. That's why we focus very strongly on local campaigning you know we think if we can keep fossil fuels in the ground as we've done with unconventional gas this week then you know that's a benefit of benefit to everyone mm. but i think that you know we we can't abandon the un process we need to keep the spotlight on it we need to keep the pressure on we need to support the governments that are speaking up in there mm. yeah right C- could it be argued that the men in suits mostly men in suits who profit from the fossil fuel industry uh, are essentially saying we don't care if the world doesn't survive the next generation because we won't be there anyway and our profit's far more important. Is that... that The profit imperative drives many things, I think we know. I think many people that I talk to, say, in the fossil fuel sector, I think, you know, often they're, quote, good people, but they're, you know, they are living in denial. They think that if they make something a bit cleaner or Mm. something a bit greener that it's enough, but if you read the science, it isn't. Mm. So I think, uh, you know, people put themselves in a cage and they justify how the cage, the bars aren't there and I think that mm. that's very true of the de- denial that exists around anyone that in this in the 21st century for instance would be saying we need more fossil fuels mm. in order say to alleviate energy poverty in India you know that's mm. so patently not true beautiful coal saving the world's it, poor exactly yeah. you know so there's a lot of denial going on there and there's a lot of self-interested denial unfortunately do you think the mm. biggest challenge to the climate is ideology you know humans unwilling to, to change their perspective in the face of new information um, because too much of their identity is tied up in a way of looking at the world and it's dealing with that it's got to be the biggest problem you know I think there's a huge de-link between ecological reality and day-to-day life yeah. and the way, you know, media reports things, it's always out of context. Yeah. Uh, you might read Arena with some more context or you might listen to 3CR with some more context, but, you know, a lot of people are in the world of reading the daily papers and, you know, th- people never put the pieces together in no. terms of how it's reported. So that's a problem. Yeah. Um, you could say that, well, you know, education system now, where is that going? I'm impressed by a lot of younger people, yes. uh, my kids, for instance, who are, you know, so much mm. more switched on about climate change and environment than I was at their age. Mm. They're the ones who are going to cop it, aren't they? They are. They sure are. There's a transition that's happening, but uh, of course at the other end you have the vested interests and they're always going to be the, you know, the foot on the brake slowing mm. things down. Mm. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, most of the men in suits we referred to, of course, are at an age where they don't have to worry about it too much in the long term, do they? Well, that's exactly right. Mm. Yeah, it's short-term thinking. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that cheery note, um, <laughs> well, have we got a cheery note? I mean, you, you were always pretty positive. Well, the cheery note. Say something positive to finish on. Been yeah. banned. Let's yeah. go back to that. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's right. we, yeah. it's, we came in to celebrate that. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the first time in Australia, and you know the implications for other states on the front line, particularly the top end, Northern Territory, yeah. WA, potentially South Australia, of setting a precedent is fantastic. It's so great. you know, it's an old one, but if you don't organise, if you don't fight, you don't win, and you know, it just shows that it's easy to be cynical about politics, but when people get together and they run sustained and, and smart mm. campaigns, mm. they can win. And this is a testament to the community yeah. doing that. That's mm. right. It is optimistic because there are big, big forces against us. So against you, I won't say I'm using us a bit loosely there, but extreme forces of, of big business and they got rolled, which is by, by people power, which is bloody good. They need to publish a handbook out of this yeah, for future activists to, to say, to. you know, the, the lessons we can learn from the fracking campaigns. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I always argue that winning the upfield line campaign ruined a perfect record for me. I was about 41 nil in terms of victories over these sort of things and we had a victory and stuffed up my record. <laughs> it was a good victory though. It was, that was a great so, victory. So there you yeah. are. Except yeah. we've now got a private development on public land over the road which is great with no public housing, whatever. I love that. And a big tree, beautiful big tree is going to get torn down. So there you are. Yeah. No, that, that was a negative. No, say something again positive. We had a win, didn't we? We had a win. We also yes. had a win on the state renewable energy target. The, the plan is uh, with the target we've been set by the state government, mm. it will generate uh, up to 10,000 new jobs in Victoria yeah, in the brilliant. next uh, through till 2025. Um, so that's really not mm. a bad outcome either. Yep, it's great. All right, Cam, look, thanks so much for that. Always good to have you in. Yeah, thank thanks, you. Cam. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And uh, Cam, seeing you're the guest today, um, thank Emma for doing a wonderful job pressing buttons and tell people we've got transport next week. Thank you very much for able uh, managing of the desk and no transports on next Transport week. Next week. And hear. the week after, something you touched on, the week after we are going to dissect the whole thing about electricity pricing and why we're getting ripped off. So uh, that'll be on as well. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's in the second Great week. Stuff. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.